okay, Ephesians chapter 5 is where, where we are. Um, now, it, it's getting kind of interesting. We are in, I think this is week 14 of the book of Ephesians, something like that. And for some of you, you're thinking, I felt like this was like week 94 of the book of Ephesians, right? And so, so we're traveling through it. And man, I have had huge hopes for you as we've read through and studied through and walked through this book. And I, I told you right at the very beginning of all this in week one, that there was a couple of reasons why I felt like Ephesians would be a good book for us. Okay, now this was my, my first comment on that, is that for pound for pound, Ephesians is, is probably the weightiest and most powerful book, most influential book in the, in the Bible. Pound for pound. It doesn't mean that, I mean, Romans might be a bigger and more massive book, but pound for pound, Ephesians packs kind of the most um, kind of weight and power behind each, each punch. It's uh, six chapters, 154 verses. It's memorizable for you. Like all of those things are possible. So this letter packs a, a big, massive punch for you. Okay, now with that, I wanted to just re-encourage you along that line to make sure that you are reading through, that you're memorizing um, the book of Ephesians with us, that you're meditating and thinking about it. Daddies, there are prayers in Ephesians that would be great for you to memorize and consistently pray over your family. Mom, same thing. And so I I just want to re-encourage you to make sure you're living in the book with us. We're going to be here for another few weeks. And so to make sure that you're living there with us, so God would start to imprint and write these words on your heart. Okay, that, that's the hope in this. So pound for pound, it's an influential book. Now here's the second reason that I said right off the cuff um, during week one, is that it counteracts a superficial knowledge of the gospel. The book of Ephesians counteracts a superficial knowledge of the gospel. It does a great job in doing this. This is the prevailing thought about the gospel in our culture. This is how it goes. If you've been a Christian and raised in church, I'll bet you this is what you believe. When somebody asks you, what is the gospel for? Who's the gospel for? Here's the prevailing thought in our culture. The gospel is for those people who do not have Jesus. It is for the lost. It's for the unsaved, the unbelievers, for those outside of Christ. Okay, look at me here. Everybody look at me. Because this is what Ephesians counteracts. It is not just for the lost. That is a half-truth at best. It is for the lost, but it is not just for the lost. It is for the saved. If you're a believer in here, the gospel's for you. It has something to say to you. Okay, this is what the book of Ephesians counteracts. It counteracts this superficial, we kind of give this to lost people, and then when you kind of enter into the kingdom, then you move past the gospel. The gospel is not just the door that you enter the kingdom through. It's not just that. That is a half-truth to think that. It is also the way you make all progress in the kingdom. Okay, Ephesians counteracts this force. It helps us see that the gospel is not just salvific. It doesn't just save you on the front end of this thing. It's redemptive. It applies to every area of your life and redeems every area of your life. That's what the gospel does. So the book of Ephesians helps us with that. It helps us see this gospel logic, right? That it's who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. What we are and have in the gospel fuels lives that reflect the gospel. So unless we understand and live in as a believer what we have and what we are in Christ, we'll never consistently live out the gospel. See, this is what the book of Ephesians does for us. It shows us that the gospel is massive, that it's big. You don't move past it, you go, grow deeper into it. That's what the gospel is. This is what it does for you. And so as a believer, it is written to the church and it's continually. Like if you just think about the book of Ephesians, the first 
like the ha- first half of the book, chapters one through three, three out of six chapters, all Paul is doing for the church is defining the gospel for them, reminding them who they are and what they have in the gospel. That is chapters one through three. Here's the gospel for you. And so we've spent 10 weeks working through those chapters trying to say, here is not just the gospel of the people of Ephesus, but here's the gospel for the people of Stonegate. This is what you are in it. This is what you have in it. And it's in understanding that that we live out the gospel, that we can reflect the gospel. Okay, now when you think about um, kind of that idea that, that in the first three chapters, there's one command. You know what? There's one command in chapters one through three. And I've said this repeatedly because I hope you remember it, right? Um, there's one command in chapters one through three. The one command is remember the gospel. In verses, chapter two, verse 11 and 12. Remember the gospel. That's the one command in the first three chapters. So from that, here's what we've continually said. That the most important thing you can do in life is know the gospel. The most, now look at this. The most important thing as a believer you can do on a daily basis is remember the gospel. You getting that? The most important thing we can know is the gospel. The most important thing we can daily remind ourselves of is the gospel. So unless we're continually reminded of this thing, we'll never have lives that reflect the gospel. Okay, so when we, when we kind of jump in, this kind of takes us to chapter 5 now. And when you jump into chapter 5, I just want to make sure you have the context clear. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever walked into a forest, but it's really easy to get lost when you're walking in the middle of a bunch of trees, right? And so it's really important that sometimes you take a step out, that you zoom out, so you can see the whole forest and where you are in the forest, right? And so we need to make sure that you continually kind of see the context so you're not lost in the book here. When you get to chapter 5, here's what's happened. Paul's defined the gospel, chapter 1 through 3. And in chapter 4, verse 1, look at chapter 4, verse 1. He's now saying in the, in the, the final three chapters, now you display the gospel. So, so here's the gospel. This is what you are. This is what you have in the gospel. Now you live gospel-reflecting lives. Now, now you have the fuel to live these lives that reflect, that display the gospel in everyday life for you. Okay, so that's where he's going in chapter 4. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I urge you, I'm pleading with you to to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to be good gospel displays. Okay, now now follow me here. I need you to get this. Here's how he starts to unpack what it means to walk in the gospel. Because the gospel creates a new gate, a new walk in your life. The gospel creates a new way of living. That's what a walk means. It's a new way of living, a distinct and different way of living. The gospel creates that. When you know what you are and what you have in the gospel, it produces in your life a new walk. And so Paul starts to unfold, like, what is this new walk? What does it look like? Okay, now I want you to to notice in chapter 4 and 5, he uses these contrasting images like these contrasting pictures to help you see what it means to walk in the gospel. Okay, now this is the first one. Look at verse um, 22. Chapter 4, verse 22. This is like the first contrasting image that he used, uses to show that this is what a walk in the gospel, this gospel gate, this new life. This is what it looks like. Okay, so he uses this imagery, 422, and he says this, that we're to put off these old things, this former way, or, uh, former way of life that's corrupt, the deceitful desires. We're to put these things off, take these off, and look at verse 24. And to put those things on. 
Like you're created after the likeness of God and, and righteousness and holiness. So you put those things on. So he uses this imagery of take off, like take off put on, this, this contrasting image. Okay, now if you've been with us the last three weeks, you know that we've unpacked um, verse 25 through 5-4. And here's what happens in verse 25, kind of through the rest of chapter 4 into, ver- into chapter 5. Paul begins to, to show us with concrete examples of what it means to take off and, and put on. Like what that means. So look at verse 25. Here here are the concrete examples of what it means to take these things off, put these things on. Verse 25, he says, you're to take off these lying lips, these false lips, and you're to put on truth-telling. We're to be people who speak the truth. That's a revolutionary thought in our culture, right? Okay, so so then he goes on, look at verse 26. We're to be people who put off this self-centered anger and put on this God-centered anger. Look at verse 28. We're to be people who, who take off stealing and we put on generous giving. Look at verse 29. We're to be people who, who lose corrupting speech, who put these things off, who put on redemptive words. If you speak, it is meant to impart grace to people, not gossip about people. Impart grace to people. That's what your words, they're a gift from God to impart grace to other people. That's what your words are. He says you're to speak redemptively. I, I told people that kind of as we were preaching through this, that this was kind of the layout of these sermons as we were preaching through these concrete examples of take off, put on. Um, kind, of, kind of the flow of these messages are right jab, right jab, left hook, right? I mean, that's what it's felt like to me. And, and so you take off th- these corrupting words, you put on redemptive words. Okay, look at verse 30. We're to take off bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander. Verse 31, we're to put on kindness. Christians are to be kind people, right? In our words and our actions, we're to sincerely seek the, the happiness and joy of those around us. That's what kindness means. Okay, then you get into chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. We're to put off sexual immorality. We're to put on sexual purity. We're to keep sex sacred right? We're to keep it in the biblical boundaries because God is wise and he knows best for us. Okay, so these are these concrete examples of of taking off and putting on. Okay, now when you get to chapter 5, verse 7, he's about to give three more contrasting images, three more contrasting pictures of what it means to walk in the gospel. And so we're going to unpack two of these today. I just want to ask you, when you listen to these, does it reflect that you have got a gospel gate? Does it reflect, as you listen to these contrasting images, does it reflect that you're walking in the gospel, that you're walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Does it do that for you? Okay, so look at verse 5. Here's what it says. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, or partners with them. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. You might circle that word darkness. Here comes the contrast. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Okay, so now he gives the, the, the solution that, the, so do this. So because of that, walk as children of the light. Okay, so do you see the contrasting picture? Paul is saying there's darkness and there's light. You were this, now you're that, so walk in light. This is what we do as a Christian. As a Christian, as a gospel-changed person, we are to walk in a different way. We are to walk as light. Okay, this is the idea here. Okay, now, now notice the contrast. Okay, the contrast is light and darkness. 
Okay, now when you think about light and darkness, there's rich biblical imagery there. Okay, this is the idea, the difference between light and darkness. There's an intellectual component and a moral component. There's a beliefs component and a behavior component. Okay, here would be the intellectual side of this. Um, Proverbs 6.23 says, your command is a lamp and your law is a light. Okay, that has nothing to do with behavior yet. That has everything to do with truth. So so light is truth. Light is a lamp. Light is um, the truth of God that shines, right? Okay, Psalms 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Here's what the truth of God does. It shines like the sun around us, lighting up truth from error, falsehood from right, right? This is what it does. It shows us what is supremely valuable and what's not what's supremely desirable and what's not. This is what light does. It's this intellectual component that says, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Okay, now this is darkness on the other end. Darkness is the inability to see that. Okay, think about 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You don't have to turn it, you can just go there later today. Read it later. Here's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. Paul's saying this about unbelievers, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Isn't that a scary thought? So they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is what it means to be in darkness, that we can't see truth from error. We can't see right and wrong. We can't see these things. We can't see what is supremely valuable. We can't see the beauty and the blessing of God. We're blinded to it. This is what it means to be in darkness. Go back to Ephesians 4.18. You see that verse? Ephesians 4.18. It's talking about an unbeliever, somebody apart from Christ. And it says, look at that, Ephesians 14. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. That is a picture of darkness. We're alienated because we can't see that God is valuable. We're alienated because we think sin is more attractive than God is. This is what it means to have a darkened understanding. There's an intellectual component. Okay, now there's also a moral component to it. There's like a behavior that's associated with it. So it's not just a belief. Beliefs always lead into behavior. Okay, now this is where, like to to illustrate darkness, um, Isaiah is going to say this. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, he is pronouncing woes upon the people of Israel. Real encouraging message, right? He pronounces these woe because of this and woe. Okay, so he's in this woe thing here. Okay, in, in Isaiah 520, he says, woe are you because you have changed, you have traded good for bad. I mean, you call evil good and good evil. Woe are you because you call light darkness and darkness light. There's a a behavior that's associated with darkness, right? This is the idea. There's a behavior associated with it. Okay, so when you think about light, darkness, there's a belief, then there's a behavior. Romans 13, 12 says that the night is far gone, the day is here. So put off the works of darkness. Okay, so there is a morally evil thing that's associated with darkness. It's a wicked behavior. Okay, now with that, I I mean, I don't think I have to convince you that we live in a dark world, right? I mean, I could probably, I don't think I do. I mean, we could talk for days in here about darkness in our world. We could talk about sex trafficking. We could talk about child pornography. We could go down the list, domestic, we could go down a laundry list of things. But this is what I want to tell you. Look at me here. Darkness is not just these massive things that we read about and hear about on the news. If you peel back the, the light of the front porches in your neighborhood, there's darkness. You getting that? If you walk past the front porches in your neighborhood into homes, 
there's darkness there. So it's not just an out there thing. It's an all around us thing. Okay, now look at me here. And God has called you. If you're a Christian, he has called you to live as light. He has called you to live in such a way that you are holding up the gospel light where people can see that God is great and glorious and gracious and so they can run to him for salvation. This is what we are called to be. We are called to be people of light that shine light everywhere we go. We carry it into our workplaces. We carry it into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our social circles. Everywhere we go, we drag and hold high this light of the gospel. This is what we are to be. We are to be people who shine gospel light into darkness, who pierce the darkness, right? This is what we're called to be. One of the ways you could think about what it means to be a Christian is you are called to be, these are the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, right? That you're called to be a, a city on a hill. That you're the light of the world. You don't put that under a basket. You put it on the stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. And listen to the reasoning of that. So that they may see your good deeds. And listen, living as light, that means that you are living in such a way that people see Jesus. Life and lips reflect the gospel. And so they they see our good deeds, they see this light, and they give glory to your Father in heaven. This is what we are called to be. Our job as a believer is to push back what is dark. That's the call. That's the call on your life. So let me just ask you the question. Are you living with that reality present? Are you living with this reality that you are called to be light with life and lips, that you are called to lift the gospel high so people can see it? Are you living with that? That's what Paul's saying here. You're to walk in light or as light. Okay, then he's going to tell us a couple of things about this light. Um, First one, look at verse eight. He's going to tell us that light requires fuel. You, you can't keep a light burning for the rest of your life without fuel that will last the rest of your life. And he gives you the fuel in, in verse 8. This is what he says. Look at your word here. Verse 8, Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For at one time you were darkness. So you were darkness. This is what you once were. Now, now look at this. It doesn't just say that you were in darkness. It says you were darkness. The problem is not external The problem is that you are born and there is an internal bent to your heart that's directed at yourself. That you were darkness. And if you look in Romans 1, I'll just encourage you to read it sometimes. You'll see that the people of the dark have the wrath of God headed straight for them. It's a Mack truck that is going to plow through everything in front of it. Okay, now notice the words, though. It's past tense. You, for, for a believer, you were darkness, right? That you were this. Okay, now look at what it goes on to say. But now you are light, right? This is the other side. So you were this, but now the gospel has made you that. See, people who are Christians, there has been a fundamental change. People who are Christians, it's not that they checked the box, said a prayer, had this moment where they talk with somebody. People that are Christians have undergone a miracle where they were dark, but now they're light. This is what it means to be a Christian, that you are now light. Isn't that beautiful? This is what it means. There's been a fundamental change in you. The light of the gospel has slammed into your heart and dethroned everything that is dark and made your heart day. That's the gospel. You were this, now you're this. I love these words of uh, 1 Peter 2, uh, I think it's 19, where uh, Peter says, 
You are a chosen race, a chosen people. You're a chosen people. You're a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You're a possession of God. And then he says this, because of that, you proclaim the excellencies, the beauty of God that has called you, listen to this, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it means to be a Christian. You have been transferred, redeemed, taken out of darkness, and you have been given light. Okay, now look at the gospel logic. So because of that, look at verse 8. So because of that, now you walk as children of light. You walk as light. This is the gospel logic. What you have and what you are in the gospel fuels a gospel-reflecting life. If you don't know what you have and what you are, if you don't know that you've been transferred out of darkness and you've been given light, you'll never live as light for the long haul. I mean, I can kind of guilt you into it. Somebody can kind of put a little fear into it, but you'll never do it for the long haul until you see the grace of the gospel that made you light. This is the gospel logic. What you have, what you are in the gospel fuels a gospel-reflecting light. That's what it does. When you realize that, it becomes this powerful fuel that's lifelong for you. It's the motivator. Grace, gospel grace is the lifelong motivator for light. Okay, so he he tells us another thing about light. Look on in verse 9. He's going to say that light produces fruit, right? Light has an effect. It causes something in us. It produces fruit in us. Look at verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. So light produces fruit. When God fundamentally changes who you are on the inside, it has fruit associated with it. Okay, now I I just want to be honest with you here. And this is what's so scary for me in our culture is that we live in a Christian culture that is totally divorced God from daily living. You get that? Totally divorced it. And and so... um, We've got a ton of people who claim Jesus, but when you start digging in the details of their life, you cannot find him. I mean, when you start digging into spending habits, the way we parent, the way we um, kind of operate in our you can't find him in there. I mean, we've divorced godly living from God, right? And so we've got this whole culture of Matthew 7 Christians. Okay, now if you read Matthew 7, at the end of the chapter, it's a scary picture. Where, where people are going to come to God at the end of the day and they're going to say, but didn't I do all these great things? I mean, I was in church. I, I mean, I checked all these boxes. I did all this stuff for you. And God looks at him and says, I never knew you. You might have known the church. You might have known a little card. You might have known the past. I mean, you can know a lot. I never knew you. And you know what's so scary about Matthew 7? Is that they were blind to that fact. And you know what's so scary about our culture? There's cultural blindness to the fact that we claim God, but there's no evidence of it in our life. And the Bible speaks really clearly into this. I mean, the Bible's going to really clearly say that if you have the root of the gospel in your heart, in your life, it's going to produce the fruit of the gospel in your life. I mean, the the, the Bible could not be more clear about that. It scares me so much because so many people are banking on a gospel that has not changed them. And if the gospel has not changed you, you would be a fool to bank on that for saving you, right? I mean, this is the idea. The best evidence of your life having the gospel root in it is gospel fruit. So if you're not producing this fruit, this light, this 
fruit out of your life, man, you need to do some serious checking on if the root has taken hold. Okay, this is, and listen, that's not a call to perfection. It is a call to being engaged in the battle against sin and for holiness. Okay, so he goes on and he describes it with three words, this fruit of, of light. He says this about it, three words. It's good, it's right, and it's true. Okay, so when you think of what it means to be good or goodness, goodness is kindness expressed. Kindness is the sincere desire that you want happiness for the people around you. It's the sincere desire. That's what kindness is. Kindness is the internal disposition. I sincerely want their well-being. Goodness is kindness expressed. Goodness is, I've got this disposition that wants their kindness, so now I'm doing these good works for them. And, And Paul's saying that the fruit of light is goodness, where we are actively doing good works for those around us. Okay, then he uses the word um, right or righteous. I don't know what that was, but it was scary, right? (laughs) Okay, he he uses the word right or righteous. And and that has the idea of holiness. That in... Wow, this is getting scary. Yeah, it's showing. Whoa. Cord. Yeah, cord, cord. Oh, that, that, that. (laughs) Okay, no. Okay, I'm going to go with, uh, do we have a Oh, I hate talking with a microphone. I just want to tell you that. I use my hands way too much for this to work well. Okay, so, so right. He, he uses the word right. And right has the idea of righteous, that you're concerned with holy living. Okay, look at this. That you are concerned of, of how you live, if it's pleasing to God. So let me just ask you the question. Does your life reflect righteousness? Does it reflect holy living? That there is a concern with how you live and how it reflects upon the gospel and the world around you. Okay, then he uses this last word. He he calls it true. And true has this idea of um, who you are behind closed doors is who you are in front of those doors. That that your word is trustworthy. Okay, this is is the fruit of light. Now look at verse 10 because I think he kind of gives a summarizing picture of it in verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so, so if you want just a general idea of what the fruit of light is, it is living a life that's pleasing to God, right? I mean, it's living in such a way that that God would look at the way you're living and smile at it, that God would be pleased with it. Okay, now, and just hear this again. That is not a call to perfection. God is not this angry dad that as soon as you step out of line, slaps you. You know, it's not, that's not the situation. The, The heart of God is be engaged in the battle, Strap on the weapons of warfare and fight against sin. Fight for holiness. Godward living. So does that describe you? Is the fruit of light taking you? You can't be light in the world if you are not living out this fruit of light. This is what light looks like to people. Goodness. Righteousness. Truth. That's what it looks like. That's the face of light, right? Okay, so let's go on. He says one more thing about light. Is light has a function. Okay, so it's not just that light is, um, has a fruit. It, 
light has a purpose. So when your light, it is to accomplish something. Okay, so, so he describes it. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Okay, so it doesn't stop there, though. It doesn't start, or it doesn't stop at just don't take part in these things. It goes on. Look at verse 12, or look at the end of verse 11. But instead, expose them. Verse 12, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Okay, so, so here's function number one of light. It exposes. Light exposes things. So we're to live in such a way that our life is shining light into the dark corners of every room we walk into. Into the dark corners of every heart we're associated with. Okay, so, so picture this scene. I think this will kind of give you maybe imagery of what Paul's talking about when he's talking about exposes. Picture this imagery of you in a very, very dark room. We're talking absolutely black. You ever been in that room? Where like you've got a finger that's one inch in front of your face and you still can't see it? You know, that room. Okay, where you could almost like cut the darkness with a knife. So we're talking a completely black room. Okay, now in that room, you don't know what you're in there with, Right? I mean, you have no idea what's in that room. I mean, you have no idea that in that room is a monster. We'll just call that monster sin, right? I mean, he is a mauling monster. Okay, and you have no idea on the other side of that room is this knight in shining armor. We'll call, we'll call him Christ, right? And he has got sword drawn, ready to save. Okay, now picture what, what happens in this dark room. You stumble onto this, this monster, and you start to kind of feel around this monster. He's kind of got f- some fur. It's warm, right? And, and so you start to feel around, and it doesn't feel real threatening. It doesn't feel real um, dangerous. Okay, then all of a sudden, you stumble over, and you, and you crash into the night. And all of a sudden, he's cold because he's got this armor on, Right? And, and he's hard. And, and you, you swipe your hand across his drawn sword and it slices your hand. And, and all of a sudden, this knight in the middle of this black room, I mean, the knight would feel like, man, man, he's cold, he's dangerous. I mean, the knight seems more like a killer than the monster does, right? This is what it means in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, to be blinded to, to, to the gospel, This is what that means. It means that we can't see that sin is the monster and that Christ is the Savior over here. And so our lives are intended to be light that exposes the room. Our our life is intended to be this light that shines into this room so that people can see that that monster that feels really innocent and really safe is just moments away from killing them. That's what your life is intended to be. And on this other hand that, that shows um, over here in this corner that the knight in shining armor that appeared dangerous and that felt like the killer in the room is really your savior. That is the function of light. This is what your life is intended to do and be for those around you. It exposes. Now, wouldn't we all agree, though, um, that when you've sat in a dark room for a long time and somebody switches on the light, what happens in that moment? That, that's a shocking moment, isn't it? I mean, there's a little bit of pain associated with that, right? As your eyes start to adjust. And that is the exact effect that your life should have on those around you. I mean, this this is the effect your life should have. It should create both friends and foes, right? I mean, Christ is going to say that the world hated me. Why wouldn't they hate you? Okay, now I'm not saying you're, you're a jerk. I'm not saying... 
I'm just saying that your life should expose sin everywhere it finds it and expose the Savior everywhere he is. That's what your life should do. It exposes. But here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't just expose. It also transforms. Now look at how this passage finishes here. Verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. So it changes the room. When you expose the room, it completely changes the dynamics. It has the ability to transform. There is a power in light that's really weird, really kind of eerie, right? Okay, it transforms the room. So here's the beauty of it. Picture this room again. So for the first time, the light exposes. Here is sin. It's a monster. It's a killer, right? And then it exposes. Here is Christ. He's a savior. Sword drawn, ready to redeem and rescue. And when that is exposed in the room, picture the guy in the room. For the first time, he sees that sin can kill him, will kill him. Ultimately, wants his destruction. For the first time, he sees the night is beautiful. And all of a sudden, he runs like a scared boy to his daddy, knowing that that night is his only hope of salvation. Okay, now look at me here. I don't know when you were saved. It might have been when you were real young. You might, you might not even be, to articulate, be able to articulate all that you felt at the time. But that is what happens to every heart that has been redeemed. There is an exposure. Here's sin. Here's the Savior. And then this transforming power comes upon us. That we see sin, Savior, unsatisfying, satisfying. And like a scared boy running to his daddy, we leap for Jesus. That's what happens in every person that's redeemed. Okay, this is the power of light. This is what you're to be. We're to walk as light. So let me just ask you the question. Is that you? Is your life currently pushing back darkness, neighborhood, family, workplace? Is it pushing back darkness in all those areas? Okay. One more contrasting image and then we'll we'll close it up here. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this. Look carefully. Here comes another image. Another contrasting image of what it means to walk in the gospel. What it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It goes like this. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's the contrasting image. You've got a fool and then you've got a wise man. And Paul is saying, as a Christian, as a gospel-bought person, You're to walk in wisdom. I mean, this is how you are to walk. You are to walk wisely in this world. Okay, so let's just think about the contrast here. When you think of fool, I mean, what do you think, right? And so biblically, I think these would be some of the thoughts that come along with that. Um, Psalms 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. That's what the fool says. Okay, so, so here is practically what a fool is. A fool is a person who lives as if there is no God. That's biblically a fool. Okay, now now hear this. Just because you philosophically believe there's a God, you can, on the other side of this, you can practically believe there is not one. I mean, a philosophical atheist, there's no difference in that and a practical atheist. 
I mean, you get in that distinction there that you can be a practical atheist. And when somebody asks you, is there a God? You say, yes, of course. I love him. Right? Okay, so a practical atheist is this person who, as they live life, you cannot find God in the details of that. Coming back to this idea, when we divorce God from the details of our life, that is what a practical atheist is. And that is just as foolish as being the philosophical atheist that would stand there and claim that there is not a God. Does that make sense? Okay, now here's the thing. To come back to this, our culture is full of practical atheists. People who would hold up the fist and amen every Sunday that there is a God, but you start trying to find him in their marriage, their parenting, their checkbook, their workplace, their neighborhood, and you cannot do it. And that is just as foolish. This is what the Bible calls being a fool, being practical atheists, living as if there is no God. Okay, now on the other side, you've got wisdom. Okay, now wisdom is, Proverbs is going to say, it it begins with the fear of the Lord, right? And and so wisdom starts with God. It is living as if God does exist. It's living with God in the center of everything you do. It's living with God-drenched dreams, with God-drenched decisions. Everything you do, every decision you make, the wise person makes it with God in the middle of it. That's what it means to be wise. The the more wise you are, the more God-centered you are. And the more God-centered you are, the more wise you are. Wise and God, they're connected. It's living as if and knowing that God is the most informed being in the universe and the best being in the universe. That's what being wise is. It's knowing that God is the most well-informed, so he's trustworthy. And he's the best. So all that is good is in God. So we live for God, love God, we're obedient to God. Wisdom, practically and biblically, has very little to do with your IQ, right? Thank the Lord for that. We'd be in trouble, right? Okay, so it has very little to do with your IQ, the amount of facts that you know. It has very little to do with that. It has very little to do with how big your vocabulary is. Although, men, we need a bigger vocabulary than TV remote. It's got to be bigger than that, right? Okay, so, so biblically, it's, it's, wisdom is knowledge applied. It's God applied to the details of your life. So let me ask you, does God apply? Does he drench? Does he saturate the details? This is what it means to be wise. Now, okay, wouldn't we agree that we have a foolish world? Again, I don't think I have to do a lot of backing on that. But you just look around and watch people. We live in the midst of a foolish world. And the only way you are going to live effectively for the name of God and the glory of God on this planet, in the middle of a broken world, in the middle of broken people, the only way you will do that is with wisdom. Because God calls you to live in the world but not be of the world, right? That takes wisdom to do that. And so we need that. We need the light of God to shine around us to give us great wisdom as we walk in this world. So Paul's telling us, this is what it means to walk in the gospel. You walk wisely. That's what it means. Okay, so you get the contrast there. Then he's going to go on to give us basically two things that demonstrate a wise life. Two things and we'll wrap it up here. Thing number one goes like this. Wise people, wisdom, makes the most of our time. Wise people make the most of their time. And I pray that over the next couple of minutes, that God might be really gracious to you to jolt you out of comfortable, non-thinking living. Okay, everybody look up here at me. 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to really zero in here. Look at Life is short. Would you agree with that? If you can't see that and you're above 30, look in the mirror, right? Life is short. Okay, the, the, the psalmist, he's going to compare it to a flower in the field. It's here one day and gone tomorrow. Its place remembers it no more. That is a picture of your life. I mean, look at the daisy in your flower bed, right? That is here one day and gone three days later. And mine two days later, right? That is your life. And if you're the, I, I, I wanted to use the word lucky, but I don't know if it's lucky or not. But if you live to be 95, it's still a blink. I mean, our life is like lightning. It is big and beautiful for a second, but it just lasts for a second, right? This is your life. It is short. Okay, now listen to this. It's not just short. It's also unpredictable. See, here's the problem we all have. We all think when we hear that some of you are going to live to 90, that we're going to be that person that lives to 90, right? That is not the case. And we need to hear this, that there are some of us that we are not going to live past the next year. You know that? Some of us in this room are not going to live past the next year. Some of us are not going to make it past another five years. Some of us are not going to make it past another 10 years. Life is unpredictable. I mean, this is just the way life is. You are one teenager texting on their way home from school, running into your car from dying, right? You are one away. You are one rogue virus away, some weird virus to dying, right? This is the unpredictability of life. I mean, this is how life is. It is unpredictable, and not all of us are going to live to 90. Okay, now listen to this statement. Here's a third one. That it's not just unpredictable and not just short, but you only have one shot at it. You have got one shot to live here. One. There are no makeup exams. There's no do-overs. They're not like a mulligan. You can kind of put one back up on the tee. You have got one shot to make a difference with your life. Are you grabbing that? One shot. How dare us not live that one shot carefully, Amen. How dare us waste our few short moments on this planet? And this is what Paul is saying, that wise people live carefully. Now, this is going to sound like a harsh statement, but it's true, so I need to say it. Most of us do not think we just live. You grabbing that? Most of us do not think we just live. So the way we parent, the way we do all these things is just a reflection of what people have done around us. We don't think we're just living. And Paul is saying, you can't just live. You have got to think first. You have got to get good, God-saturated ambitions for all these areas of your life. You've got to sit with God and dream and ask God to reveal to you what would be great godly ambitions for all of these things that you've given me responsibility for. I mean, what would be good God-saturated ambitions for my life, for my parenting, for our marriage? What would be good God-saturated, God-glorifying ambitions in all of these areas? And then you've got to reverse engineer your life to get there. That is what it means to walk carefully, to walk wisely. And listen, it is a shame. It makes me want to just cry because there's so few people who have good God-saturated ambition for your life. So few. If your kids walked up to you and said, what is your God-given ambition? I mean, what are you doing with your life? 
I mean, how does that response go? And just from experience, here's what I've come to find. So few people have God-glorifying answers to that. And that's what it means to walk as a fool. So Paul's saying we've got to be careful that we need godly ambitions for our parenting. You've got 18, maybe 18 years with your kids, right? I think it would be worth thinking through what it would mean to get good God-saturated ambitions for those 18 years. And to start when they're like out of the womb and getting there, right? I mean, that would be a careful, a wise way to live. If you want a good marriage, they don't just happen. They don't. Just look around. They don't just happen. They are abnormal animals. That's what they are. So if you want one, you've got to reverse engineer it to get there. You've got to make plans from the beginning to get you to the desired goal, right? This is what it means to live carefully. Okay, so I just want to press on you here. Do you have God-saturated ambition for your life? Are you walking carefully? Are you thinking? Are you thinking about how you're living and not just living it? This is the idea of what it means to walk carefully. And listen, I, I want to just throw out this warning in here. When most people think God-saturated ambition, here's what normally comes to our mind. God, I'm going to go to South America and save like the whole continent. Let's do that, right? This is what comes to our mind. That is, wise people know that God works in small ways. In the small details of your life. Listen, your life is not made up of massive moments. Your life is made up of monotonous, everyday, ordinary moments. And it is getting God-saturated ambition inserted into the monotonous moments of your life, a.k.a. your parenting, a.k.a. the neighborhood God's placed you in, the workplace he's placed you in. It's God-saturated ambition there. Do you have that? For your workplace, do you have it? For your neighborhood. Okay, this is the idea of what it means to walk carefully. Okay, then he goes on. This is where we'll finish. He says, wise people... They understand what the will of the Lord is. Wise people know this. They understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, now, there's all this confusion. One of these days, we'll do a series on this idea of the will of God. But there's all this confusion that revolves around it. So I, I want to clarify a couple things, do a little primer here, and then we'll close it up. When somebody comes to you and says, what is the will of God? The first thing you have to do is distinguish between two things here. There's the general will of God. This is the will of God for all people everywhere. And here's the beautiful thing. 99% of the will of God for your life is revealed in the scriptures. So you just have to know the scripture to know the will of God. This is 99% of all the questions you'll ask deal right there. You just open up the Bible, you start reading, and you can find it. The general will of God. So it is opening up the Bible and living what the Bible clearly calls all of us to live by. That we, we speak truth. We speak redemptively. We put off stealing. We're generous givers. I mean, it's, it's those sorts of things. Clearly says it in the scriptures. General will of God. I mean, how are we doing there, first of all? I mean, are we living out what we know to live? Okay, then on the other hand, this is what most people, when they ask the question, what they're getting at. Is the particular will of God. Where, where it is, what does God want in this specific situation? In this moment in life. Okay, so as an illustration there, um, I married Laura eight years ago. And uh, when, when I was going through the process of, do I marry her? Do I not marry I'm, what's, Is she going to marry me? That would be a better question, right? Um, when, when I'm going through that process, I, like, I can't like, flip to page 422 and find Laura in there, right? 
It doesn't work that way. And, and so here's what you've got to do with the particular will of God. When you're working for a job and you feel like, man, maybe God is calling the switch. I mean, when, when this particular will of God in this moment, in this situation, here's what we've got to rely on to determine the, the particular will of God. We've got the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. And so we read the word of God. So when I'm trying to, to figure out, am I marrying Laura or not? Am I going to ask her or not? I'm trying to figure out, does she have the qualifications that the Bible would say I need in a wife? And she's asking the same thing about me. Does he have the qualifications that the Bible would call me to marry? And if there's a red flag there, we pull back. If we're making a job change and there's a red flag in the sort of job we're doing biblically, then we pull back. So we, we run it through the grid of the word of God. And then we run it through the spirit of God. Where we're asking the Holy Spirit to have rule and reign in our hearts. Where we feel like the Holy Spirit feels. If there's one thing you ought to pray consistently for your life, it is that the Holy Spirit would have such sway in you. And when you're presented with a situation, you would feel as God feels. Okay, that's the Spirit of God. But here's the problem with the Spirit of God. I don't trust myself, you know? I mean, I could really make a wreck of something in a hurry. And that's where the people of God come into play. That we take the, the, this idea of the particular will of God, what does God want in this situation, and we take it to the people of God, and we ask the people around us that God has given to give us good godly counsel, and we ask them, what do you think? What's your insight into this? So when I went to marry Laura and I was going to ask her, I had about five guys that I knew would give me an honest opinion. And I said, what do you think? Right? I mean, this is how believers are to operate in the particular will of God. We are to take it through the grid of the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. And listen, here's what a fool does. A fool makes decisions without those things. A fool makes decisions apart from the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. A foolish church makes decisions apart from the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. Okay, we'll, we'll close with this. The way of wisdom. Wouldn't you say you want to be more wise? I would. I need wisdom. It's something you could pray for me consistently, right? I want to be more wise. And I love these words of James, and we'll end with this on the way of wisdom. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Isn't that beautiful? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Here's the beauty of the way of wisdom. James 1.5, God says, ask for it. Right? I give it. So God gives. You don't earn wisdom. You didn't do enough good things to kind of deserve wisdom. God has it. We need it. And God gives it. God gives. And here's, here's the beauty of what God gives. It's generous. He doesn't just give. He gives a generous portion of wisdom when we ask. So if you can imagine Solomon, um, God takes him and says, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. Solomon asks for wisdom. And God doesn't just give it. He gives it generously to Solomon. The Bible says he's the wisest person that's walked apart from Christ, right? So God gives, God gives generously, and God gives without reproach. He doesn't give based on your past successes or past failures. Look at this. He gives by you asking. Here's the beauty of wisdom. It's there for the asking, right? It's there for the asking. And may we be people who ask God consistently to be wise people so we can walk in wisdom. Let's pray.
So the contrasting images. Light, darkness, full, wisdom. Man, do those reflect your life? I mean, do they reflect what's happening for you? Is your life holding up gospel light, exposing and transforming everything around it? Does your life hold up godly wisdom? Is it taking advantage of these few short moments that you have? You know, like when I think about church history, people typically write about it in like 100 blocks, block periods. And so in the 1500s, God did this. This was the people of God. This was the situation in the church. Here's the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s. And I just wonder what our block is going to sound like. And here's the truth for us. If something doesn't change, it is going to be a bad picture, right? I mean, if something doesn't change, it's going to sound like um, they built massive monuments to themselves. I mean, they were so concerned with numbers and so unconcerned with maturity. I mean, they're so shallow. I mean, if something doesn't change, that picture is going to be so horrific for us to read someday. Now, I just pray that God would give us um, today the light that would help us see that we need godly ambition. God-drenched dreams for our lives. I just want to press on you. Do you have that? Are you there? Do you have those things working? When your kids come up and ask, So God, we pray for them. God, I pray that you would do that for us. God, I pray for the Stonegate family, that in our community, we would be holders and lifter-uppers of gospel light. God, help us be that. For the sake of your glory, for the good of your name. God, I pray that, that you would be gracious to us in giving us, bestowing upon us, blessing us, lavishing us with wisdom. God, we tell you that we need it pray that for our daddies, our mamas, our families, our teenagers, our singles. God, we're desperate for that. So we'll, we'll finish today by Kevin singing a song. And you can, you're more than welcome to use the front of the stage as an altar. If you want to bring your family down and pray that God would give you wisdom. Daddies, if you want to just come up and pray today that God would make you a wise person, that God would make your family light, that he would give you good ambition for your life that runs deeper than making a dollar on gathering another trinket. God, it's in your good name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Why don't you stand with us?